Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm joined with a wonderful group of actors who are going to be taking us on a journey through Act One of King Henry IV Part Two. If you want to find out what happened in Part One, see the previous five or six episodes of this podcast. Um, we're going to get right to it and I would like to introduce our wonderful group here, starting with Marty. Could you please tell us your name, which is Marty, who you're playing, and what your relationship with is the is with this play? Hi, sure. Um, my name is Marty Madden. I will be playing Sir John Falstaff, and uh, I was lucky enough to play Falstaff in King Henry the Fourth Part One last year, and. I've seen bits of the play as incorporated into uh, collages of the play that have been done, you know, bits and pieces of it, but um, never seen the full play, never acted in it. Um, so very excited to explore the play and get to uh, take a stab at Falstaff again. Wonderful. Thank you. So uh, Sam, please. Uh, hi, I'm, my name is Samantha Blinn. Um, I'm reading... Uh, for a few different characters. So I'm reading for uh, Mistress Quickly, uh, Lady Percy, which is actually a personal favorite of mine, um, Lord Hastings, uh, the Duke of Gloucester, and then I'll be taking us out with the epilogue at the end. Um, so I have, I have seen this play. Actually, Ariana and I saw a really wonderful uh, kind of joint production of Henry IV Part One and Two at St. Anne's Warehouse a few years back, which was remarkable. Um, and then aside from that, I actually had the chance to play Lady Percy in uh, a production of Dames of Thrones, the Women of Shakespeare's History, which was uh, uh, conceptualized, conceived, and directed by Miss Ariana Karp. Um, <laughs> what a champion of a person. But it's been, yeah, it's been a minute since I've uh, visited this play, so I'm excited to dive back into it and re-familiarize myself with it. Thank you, Sam. Danny. Playing Rumor, Thund, and The Porter. I believe those are all the act one characters I'm playing. Uh, and this is my very first experience with this play. Wonderful. Always exciting to dive into a new play. Uh, Liam, please. All right, cool. So uh, I'm I'm uh, Liam Mitchell, uh, and uh, I this is uh, my first time actually with uh, part two. Although uh, I was also in that uh, Henry uh, the Fourth Part One production with uh, with Marty, uh, and so I'll, I'll be reprising uh, Prince John, uh, and then also uh, I'll be playing Lord Bardolph, Page Boy, Warwick, and First Groom. Excellent. Thank you, Eric. Please. Uh, hi, yes, I'm Eric Devlin. Uh, I'll be playing in this act, Travers and the Servant. Uh, and later in the play, I'm playing uh, Henry IV and Francis, uh, Francis the Drawer in the Tavern. Uh, I have no prior history with this play, uh, but uh, oh boy, it's a great play and I'm real happy to be doing this. Wonderful. Amber. I'm Amber. Uh, Am Eric and I are married, and uh, I saw Marty and Liam last summer in part one. It was wonderful, wonderful. wonderful. Uh, really well done. And um, 
I've read it before, but uh, every year I find when I read a Shakespeare play, I understand more and more and more. So uh, I'm playing uh, Morton Snare, Lady Northumberland, Peter, Will, or Just a Shallow Harcourt and the Second Groom. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm also, this is so far has more characters than any of the Shakespeare plays that I've so far done <laughs> tabling. So it's like everyone has this huge list of characters. Um, it's kind of extraordinary. Uh, Rhoda. Hi, thanks. I'm Rhoda Bodson and I have never read this play, seen this play, nothing. And I'm glad, I, I love it. It's very entertaining and it makes me feel a little bit better about our current age. I am playing Lord Chief Justice, Silence, Beetle, and best of all, Moldy. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, there's, uh, Shakespeare was really great at coming up with the uh, character names for <laughs> these poor working class people. <laughs> Moldy, Feeble, Wart, <laughs> like Shadow, Bullcalf. I, I, I want, it would, it would make a good band name, I feel like, um, <laughs> somehow. Mike, please. Hi. Again, sorry I'm late. Jesus Christ. So I, I'll be reading. Um, I didn't realize there were two Bardoffs in this show. I was, I, I, I never read the whole thing. I generally just look over my own lines, but the, <laughs> um, uh, I'm one of those. But uh, so I'll be re-looking over some things. Um, it makes sense, though, because the Archbishop and Lord Bardoff are in a scene together, and I was a little curious about that. But the, um, uh, yeah, uh, very much looking forward to this. Uh, I think the only real experience I have with this is I got to see, was it Kings of War um, mm. the, uh, at uh, BAM years ago, when they, when they combine uh, the Henrys and Richard III all into one, and it was uh, phenomenal. All in Dutch, which I wasn't. Uh, real excited about but uh it was uh it was it was fantastic nonetheless i didn't think i'd enjoy it as much as i did but really really fun and i know sam i forgot sam you're doing this fun hi sam hi mike i miss you i miss you too it's good to see you, good to see you. yeah i'm i'm really excited it seems like we've so for this group we have a lot of people in santa fe and then we have some people in new york and i am out in rural northern california so it's 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 very fun um, little cross country endeavor, um, and I'm Ariana. I'm not going to be reading any character, but I'm terribly excited to be revisiting this play. Um, I, as I was telling the uh, King Henry the Fourth Part One group, the first role I ever had in the theater, the first Shakespeare, the ever the first acting I ever did was playing Prince Hal in King Henry the Fourth Part One when I was thirteen. I played it again when I was 17 and again when I was 23. Um, and when I was 23, I also got to play Prince Hal in part two in a full production, but it was an incredibly rushed rehearsal process um, for part two. And I never felt like I really got to dig into this part two. And I've always been very fond of it. So I'm really excited to dig in with all of you and, and get to those details and what makes it great. And a gout of this pox and a pox of this gout, as, as Falstaff would say. So let's just dive straight in. Um, we have a wonderful sort of precursor to the chorus in Henry V's character here, 
but even cooler, not the chorus, but rumor. And with the most extraordinary um, stage direction, <laughs> I think, um, appears in this play, Enter Rumor Painted Full of Tongues. I leave that visual up to you. Um, so Danny, why don't you take us through this prologue or induction of Henry IV, part two. Open your ears for which of you will stop the vent of hearing when loud rumors speaks. I from the Orient to the drooping West, making the wind my post horse, still unfold the ax commented on this ball of earth. <laughs> Upon my tongue's continual slanders ride, the which in every language I pronounce, stuffing the ears of men with false reports. I speak of peace while covert enmity under the smile of safety wounds the worlds, and who but rumor, who but only I make fearful musters and prepare defense whilst the big year, swollen with some other grief, is thought with child by the stern tyrant war. And no such matter? <laughs> rumor is a pipe blown by surmises, jealousies, conjectures, and of so easy and so plain a stop that the blunt monster with uncounted heads, the still discordant wavering multitudes can play upon it. But what need I thus my well-known body to anatomize among my household? Why is rumor here? I run before King Henry's victory, who in a bloody field by Shrewbury hath beaten down young Hotspur and his troops, quenching the flame of blood rebel rebellion, even with the rebels' blood. But what mean I to speak so true at first? <laughs> My office is to noise abroad that Henry Monmouth fell under the wrath of noble Hotspur's sword and that the king before the Douglas's rage stooped his anointed head as low as this I have rumored through the peasant towns between the royal field of Shrewbury and this worm-eating hole of ragged stone. <laughs> While Hotspur's father, Northumberland, lies crafty, sick, the posts come trying on, and not a man of them brings other news than they have learned from me. From rumors tongues, they bring smooth comforts false, worse than true wrongs. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Wow. What a, what a crazy way to open a play. Um, uh, for those of you listening in Henry the fourth part one ends with a very clear victory for the King and the King's side. There's kind of absolutely no question. And I, I can't help but think that Shakespeare wanted to create a little bit of drama here at the top of the, at the top of the show and be like, remember the battle of Shrewsbury and how bloody and weird and scary it was. Let's bring that energy back into the room. Um, Danny, what? Uh, so Danny read uh, Constance for us in King John. This is a very, very different <laughs> kind of character. What were your um, observations? What, what were your, your feelings as you were reading this? Um, well, every time I read through it, it feels like 
you know, just like the imagery, the, the, the tongues things, right? Like, like who is really taking him seriously or are they, they taking themselves seriously? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It feels comical yet, um, yet very buffoonish, which yeah. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with. Yeah, I, I love that. I think it, it's like, there's something very seductive about this, this figure. I think there's something that um, pulls us in and, and also kind of guilts us at the very beginning with like, open your ears because I know how much all of you love gossip. Like, don't deny that you don't, you know, there's something like both, both very enticing and kind of shaming about this figure from the top, which I, which I really like. Um, and that, that, exactly what rumor is saying is exactly what we're going to see in the first in the first scene where the one lord comes in and says it's great news northumberland your son hotspur is one he killed prince hal king uh was wounded almost to death and falstaff is prisoner to your son and we're all like wait a second we didn't that's not what we experienced at the end of the play and then in comes and then in comes one of Northumberland's servants saying no 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 rebellion had ill luck and then in comes another one that gives us all the details of of what actually happened but there is this interesting kind of slipperiness about the beginning um, of this play did anyone else have any any thoughts as they were as they were listening about this beginning fake news <laughs> fake news <laughs> oh wow yeah oh my gosh that's kind of terrifying isn't it um well, kind of yeah <laughs> we um we were talking about about the relevance of 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 these history plays um to our current political situation and the power of political rhetoric and how easily it can be bent one way or another and how quickly these people stab each other in the back when it when they lose the when the self-interest um is lost when as as the bastard in king john says commodity is the bias of the world right commodity meaning self-interest so it is kind of fascinating um that we start with such a a slippery fake news <laughs> kind of beginning wonderful i think i think of the structure of the, the play to it being a sequel that was probably written after the su success of the first play. Yeah. And even with like Henry V with, um, I forget his name, but you know, the, the uh, model of the soliloquy at the beginning of that. Oh with, yeah, chorus. Uh, just weaving yeah. these, chorus, weaving these um, plays together and getting people caught up sort of, you know, it's just sort of, and then we start, bam, you know, so it, it just always reminds me of the, Although Star Wars is the original movie, just that crawl at the beginning of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. That's totally what I was thinking <laughs> too. Yeah. Yes, we. It's so funny you should bring that up. We definitely have brought up Star Wars and Lord of the Rings parallels in all of the plays so far, which has been really fun. And um, and as Andrew said in our last session, he always loves it when uh, Shakespeare quotes Lord of the Rings. Um, it's always great when that happens. Um, so yeah, so we have admittedly false narrator, right? An untrustworthy narrator to start us off which leads us to a scene about untrustworthy news sources. Um, so let's jump right into that. Uh, so we have, uh, 
I, I sort of do little little French scenes, uh, which it, it's a very old way of breaking up scripts of just whenever a new character enters, it's a new scene or whenever a character exits, it becomes a new scene. So this first little bit is um, I have entitled Earls and Orchards followed by Here He Comes, followed by Good News. So let's get through those three little um, French <laughs> scenes here. <laughs> All, right. All right, so we got Lord Bardolph, the Porter, and Northumberland. Who keeps the gate here? Ho, where is the Earl? What shall I say you are? Tell thou the Earl that the Lord Bardolph doth attend him here. His Lordship is walked forth into the orchard. Please it, your honor, knock but at the gate, and he himself will answer. Here comes the earl. What news, Bardolph? Every minute now should be the father of some stratagem. The times are wild, contention like a horse, full of high feeding, madly hath broke loose and bears down all before him. Noble earl, I bring you certain news from Shrewsbury. Good, and God will. As good as heart can wish, the king is almost wounded to death, and in the fortune of my lord, your son, Prince Harry, slain outright, and both the blunts killed by the hand of Douglas. The young Prince John and Westmoreland and Stafford fled the field, and Harry Monmouth's brawn, the hulk, Sir John, is prisoner to your son. Oh, such a day, so fought, so followed, and so fairly won, came not till now to dignify the time since Caesar's fortunes. How is this derived? Saw you the field? Came you from Shrewbury? I spake with one, my lord, that came from thence, a gentleman well-bred and of good name, that freely rendered me these news for true. Okay, let's pause there. So this is our sort of first section of this scene, right? So what are, what, um, Liam, tell us about this Lord Bardolph. Of course, Shakespeare couldn't think of another name. There's another very important character just named Bardolph, <laughs> who has a very red face and is a very, like, come on, Shakespeare, could you not come up with another name? It's just outrageous. Anyway, <laughs> what are your yeah. observations about Lord Bardolph? <laughs> I, I mean I, I find it yeah i find it funny that well one the name of course yeah it's it's similar but uh, but also just like the character he's very trusting it's just like yeah yeah you know this guy looks good uh he checks out <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure i'm gonna trust him uh, uh and uh, to the leader of the rebellion that's gonna yeah. work out <laughs> I love that he 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 said, "Oh yeah, I, no, I I wasn't there, but I I talked to one who was well born." And as we're going to find out in this in this scene, the people who are well born do not have the accurate news. The people who have the accurate news are the two servants of Northumberland. Uh -huh. Um the not highborn people that have accurate news, which I think in a, in a sort of way, uh, connecting back to what you were saying, Danny, about the sort of buffoon-like nature is very much like a commedia trope, right? The like very smart servant who's always hungry <laughs> and who always like is a little bit more on top of things than the master figure. Um, and it's interesting to me, just to connect this to, to part one, that rumor had called Northumberland lying crafty sick, meaning pretending to be sick, 
which as we discussed at length in Henry the Fourth Part One, um, really means he kind of condemned his son, his own son to death by not showing up. And so there is something a little bit um, disturbing about that. And Hotspur was really just so freaking abandoned. <laughs> like Northumberland, who had the largest power, was supposed to show up and didn't. Glendower, who had the second largest power, was supposed to show up and didn't. And it's like all of these allies just abandoned this poor guy and he was left to sort of fight completely outnumbered. Oh, I wanted to mention just a fun piece of language here. The Harry Monmouth's Braun, <laughs> the Hulk Sir John. Uh, mm -hmm. Braun here uh, means a fatted boar or a stuffed pig. <laughs> which I just, I just love that like this Lord Bardolph comes in and like even these the noblemen are, are talking about Falstaff. Like they're using the same roasted manning tree ox with the pudding in his belly from part one <laughs> we got a whole lot of we got a whole lot of food imagery just heading our way right from the beginning um danny what are your what are your impressions of of northumberland so far well it it feels like he already has a feeling about like bad news yeah. um and i don't really know what it what it is that gives me hit that feeling, but um, you know, you know, what news, Lord Bardolph? Every minute now should be the father of some stratagem. It's like you know, you don't know what to expect. Absolutely. So it's like I can expect anything. Um, so what news do you bring? The times are crazy, and um, <laughs> sound familiar? Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> precisely. Absolutely. I love that. And, and, and there's something, the, the times are wild and madly broke loose. There's something a little bit unhinged about, about this, I think. Mm. Um, absolutely. So now we have our, our next little French scene, which I have entitled bad news after the good news. Um, and then we're going to have really bad news in about a page or so. Um, I'm not very creative with my with my naming, I must I must say. So here we have um, entering Travers, who is a servant of Northumberland. Um, and so this is Northumberland, Lord Bardolph and Travers. Here comes my servant Travers, who I sent on Tuesday last to listen after news. My Lord, I overrode him on the way and he is furnished with no certainties more than he happily may retail from me. Now, Travers, what good tidings come from you? My lord, Sir John Umfraville turned me back with joyful tidings, and being better horsed, outrode me. After him came spurring hard a gentleman, almost forspent with speed, that stopped by me to breathe his bloodied horse. He asked the way to Chester, and of him I did demand what news from Shrewsbury. He told me that rebellion had bad luck and that young Harry Percy's spur was cold. With that, he gave his able horse the head and bending forward, struck his armored, armored heels against the panting sides of his poor jade up to the rowel head. And starting so, he seemed in running to devour the way, staying no longer questioned. Ah, again? Said he, young Harry Percy's spur was cold of Hotspur, Coldspur, that rebellion had met, that rebellion had met ill luck. 
My lord, I'll tell you what. If my young lord, your son, have upon mine honor for a silken point, I'll give you my barony. Never talk of it. Well, why should that gentleman that rode by Travers give then such instances of loss? Who he? He was some helding fellow that stolen the horse he rode on and, so, and upon my life spoke at a venture. Look, here comes more news. Okay, let's just pause there before really bad news enters. Um, so we've got we've got we've got Travers, we've got Northumberland, um, and Lord Bardolph. <laughs> Lord Bardolph, I must say, is is quite a um, quite a haughty kind of lord. He's not? such a schmuck. Yeah. That's all I wrote down. That's all I wrote down in my notes. Like I just like Lord Bardolph is a complete schmuck there's no other way to describe it. i'm clearly right yeah come on you're like no 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 no. i'm definitely right i'm, he's I'm definitely totally right fine he's yeah. picking up bagels on the way home everything's gonna be okay <laughs> you know? trump exactly. won. And, and trump won the election by a landslide yeah. total, total yes man yeah very much very much um i was struck how how much um and we're gonna see this uh, a lot in the history place how much people talk about horses um, and, uh, and I've been working on our, our script for the radio play of Henry V, and there is a scene where the French lords are sitting around kind of equating their horses with their mistresses, um, which is a, oh, little no. bit, a little bit weird, as, as somebody pointed out. It's a little bit like um, the way guys can sometimes talk about their cars. Like, oh, yeah, that's my baby. She's so great, you know, or whatever. But there is there is an interesting, um, Travers has this, oh, yeah, the other guy had a better horse than I did. And I, I'm, I'm just very interested by the, the horse imagery here and, the, and, and, the, and Travers' wonderful little detail about this rider was being so mean to this poor horse that had blood on it, that was panting. And this poor horse is like, Ugh. And he just, he, he, he just kept, made it kept going. Um, Eric, what were your, uh, any observations about, about Travers? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, Travers knows that what he's saying is not what Northumberland wants to hear. Uh, yeah. Just the opposite of Bardolph, who's delighted to tell Northumberland what he will want to hear. Uh, and for Travers, uh, his perspective is different. For the Lord, <laughs> the condition of the horse is probably totally, totally irrelevant. Uh, the, the, uh, the servant is really closer in being a fellow uh, citizen of the world with the horse. Uh, but uh, I think Travers here, he knows what he's saying is not going to be welcome, but uh, it's true and that's what he has to report. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and that's something that we're going to also hear with Morton, this sort of r reluctance to spill all the truth because the truth is is not good for this rebellion they they are they are not in a good in a good way um i i love this uh northumberland line of hotspur cold spur mm -hmm. you know what a wonderful little antithesis and and we had known harry percy as hotspur and he is a very fiery irrational um a little bit sporadic uh character and there's something very very simple and touching to me about the idea of something very hot just turning cold and losing the thing that made it very distinctive there's there's something very there's like a little quiet tragedy in that uh for me 
um, even though it's kind of a funny word, cold spur. Wonderful. So in comes really bad news. So Morton enters and this is going to uh, take us through to the, to, the, to the end of this scene. So have fun, everyone. Yea, this man's brow like to a tidal leaf foretells the nature of a tragic volume. So looks the strand where upon this impervious flood hath left a witnessed usurpation. Say, Morton, didst thou come from Shrewsbury? I read from Shrewsbury, my noble lord, where hateful death put on his ugliest mask to fright our party. How doth my son and brother, thou tremblest. And the whiteness in thy cheek is apter than thy tongue to tell thy errand. Even such a man, so faint, so spiritless, so dull, so dead in look, so woe-begone, drew Priam's curtain in the dead of night and would have told him half his Troy was burnt, but Priam found the fire ere he his tongue, and I, my Percy's death, ere thou reportest it. This thou wouldst say, your son did thus, and thus, your brother thus, so fought the noble Douglas, stopping my greedy ear with their bold deeds, but in the end, to stop my ear indeed, thou hast a sigh to blow away this praise, ending with brother, son, and all are dead. Douglas is living, and your brother yet, but for my lord, your son. Why is he dead? See what a ready tongue suspicion hath. He that but fears the thing he would not know hath by instinct knowledge from others' eyes that with that what he feared is chanced. Yet speak, Morton. Tell thou an earl, this his divination lies, and I will take it as a sweet disgrace and make thee rich for doing me such wrong. You are too great to be by me, gainsaid. Your spirit is too true, your fears too certain. Yet for all this, say not that Percy's dead. I see a strange confession in thine eye, Thou shakest thy head and holdest it fear or sin to speak a truth. If he be slain, the tongue offends not that reports his death, and he doth sin that doth belie the dead. Not he which says the dead is not alive. Yet, the first bringer of unwelcome news hath but a losing office, and his tongue sounds ever after as a sullen bell, remembered toiling a departing friend. I cannot think, my lord, your son is dead. I am sorry I should force you to believe that which I would to God I had not seen. But these mine eyes saw him in bloody state, rendering faint quittance, wearied and outbreathed to Harry Monmouth, whose swift wrath beat down the never daunted Percy to the earth, from whence with life he never more sprung up. In few, his death 
whose spirit lent a fire even to the dullest peasant in his camp. Being brute at once, took fire and heat away from the best tempered courage in his troops. For from his metal was his party steeled, which once in him abated, all the rest turned on themselves like dull and heavy lead. And as the thing that's heavy in itself upon enforcement flies with greatest speed, so did our men heavy in hot spurs lost, lend to this weight such lightness with their fear that arrows fled not swifter toward their aim than did our soldiers aiming at their safety fly from the field. Then was that noble Worcester so tame prisoner and that furious Scott, the bloody Douglas, whose well-laboring sword had three times slain the appearance of the king, gan veil his stomach and degrace the shame of those that turned their backs, and in his flight, stumbling in fear, was took. The sum of all is that the king hath won and hath sent out a speedy power to encounter you, my lord, under the conduct of young Lancaster and Westmoreland. This is the news at full. For this, I shall have time enough to mourn. In poison there is physic, and these news, having been well, that would have made me sick. Being sick have in some measure made me well. And as a wretch whose fever weakened joints like strengthless, like strengthless hinges buckle under life, impatient of his fit, breaks like a fire out of his keeper's arms, even so my limbs weakened with grief, being now enraged with grief and thrice themselves Hence, therefore, thou nice crutch, a scaly gauntlet now with joints of steel must glove this hand. And hence, thou sickly quaff, thou art a guard too wanton for the head, which princes fleshed with conquest aim to hit. Now bind my brows with iron and approach the raggedest hour that time and dare bring to frown upon the enraged Northumberland. Let heaven kiss earth. Now let not nature's hand keep the wild flood confined. Let order die and let this world no longer be a stage to feed contention in the lingering act but let the one spirit of the firstborn Cain reign in all bosoms, that each heart being set on bloody courses, the rude scene may end and darkness be the barrier of the dead. This strain of passion oh, doth you wrong, my lord. Oh, I'm sorry. I, my, I'm reading, <laughs> That's from right. the, reading from the Pelican and it says Travers has the line. I apologize. Oh, you know, this is a, a wonderful moment. This this line does not appear in the folio at all, which is interesting. It's kind mm. of a big old question mark. What like where is this from? It's from an earlier quarto, perchance. But yeah, there's there's definitely some textual variation here. <laughs> sure. about that. Oh no worries. 
This strained passion doth you wrong, my lord. Sweet Earl, divorce not wisdom from your honor. The lives of all your loving complices lean on your health, the which, if you give o'er to stormy passion, must perforce decay. You cast the event of war, my noble lord, and summed the account of chance before you said, let us make head. It was your pre-surmise that in the dole of blows your son might drop. You knew he walked o'er perils on an edge more likely to fall in than to get o'er. You were advised his flesh was capable of wounds and scars and that his forward spirit would lift him where most trade of danger ranged. Yet did you say, go forth and none of this, though strongly apprehended, could restrain the stiff-born action? What hath then befallen? Or what hath this bold enterprise brought forth more than that being which was like to be? We all that are engaged to this loss knew that we ventured on such dangerous seas that if we wrought out life, t'was ten to one, and yet we ventured for the gain proposed, choked the respect of likely peril feared, and since we are or set, venture again. Come, we will all put forth body and goods. Tis more than time, and my most noble lord, I hear for certain and dare speak the truth, the gentle Archbishop of York is up with well-appointed powers. He is a man who with a double surety binds his followers. But Lord, your son had only but the corpse, but shadows and the shows of men to fight. For that same word, rebellion, did divide the action of their bodies from their souls. And they did fight with queasiness, constrained as men drink potions that their weapons only seemed on our side. But for their spirits and souls, this word rebellion, it had froze them up as fish are in a pond. But now the bishop turns insurrection to religion. Suppose sincere and holy in his thoughts, he's followed both with body and with mind and doth enlarge his rising with the blood of fair King Richard scraped from pomfret stones, derives from heaven his quarrel and his cause, tells them that he doth bestride a bleeding land, gasping for life under great bowling broke. And more and less do flock to follow him. I knew of this before, but to speak truth, this present grief had wiped it from my mind. Go in with me and counsel every man the aptest way for safety and revenge. Get post and letters and make friends with speed, never so few and never yet more need. Wonderful, thank you everyone. Welcome Noah. Hello, hello. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so, Amber, tell me about Morton. What an amazing character who just shows up and, and gives this, this news. 
Well, I think he's a person of great character and he speaks the truth. He's yeah. not going to let this um, highfalutin Lord <laughs> think he's Rude. won the election. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. I, I, I really enjoy his sort of buck up, sir. He sort of has two speeches. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. There. Get over it. Yeah. But also it's like, it's kind of this wonderful reminder that you knew you were risking your son yeah, when you yeah. didn't show up. You knew that this is not new information, sir. So like you can, you can be emotional. Of course you just lost your son, but you also knew that you might lose your son by not showing up to the battle. Well, of Shrewsbury. Why did Northumberland do that? It's He's just a coward. Uh, well, it's never really entirely explained why he doesn't, why he didn't show up. And, and to historians as well, there's, there's a lot of confusion and, and um, speculation, which is, which is interesting. I, I, I love this, this turn right near the beginning of this section, Northumberland, where it's like you have to put this situation into a mythical proportion. Like you've got to go and take yourself to Troy <laughs> in order to make to make this um, to make this work. The 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 speech on on uh, page four um, of drawing uh, Priam's curtain in the dead of night. So Priam, mm -hmm. king of Troy, and um, he was the the husband of Hecuba. For those of you familiar with Hamlet. What's Hecuba to he or he to Hecuba? And he was killed by Pyrrhus during the sack of Troy. So this is this is essentially you're you're putting Hotspur's death in the same kind of mythic proportion as the burning of Troy, which is kind of extraordinary. But I, I always find in Shakespeare that when characters do that, it's because they need imagery of that size to describe the situation that they're in. Um, and to make sense of it's it's like you have to put yourself in a in a different frame somehow w were there any other uh, any other questions or or observations about well, i had a thought ariana yeah, about yeah, Cumberland and why he abandoned his son and i was just thinking because i've been watching the crown recently and you know when somebody is your heir to a title to lands to vast riches they're not just your son but they're a threat to your status to your life to your mm. very life itself oh yeah fascinating it, wow it, so maybe it was just kind of like his basest instincts came to the fore and he just couldn't help himself and it was him or his son and he chose himself that his is priority is his power his position that's his priority yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, all of these plays, I think one of the, one of the troubles and one of the things that's really hard about history plays as a, as a theater producer, <laughs> they're really hard to market because they don't have great names. <laughs> part one and part two is just, I feel like when audiences are going to a history play, they automatically think, okay, so I got to do my homework before I go and see this show. And I just want to like say to them, no, Oh, you'll fall in love with the characters you'll get into the situation you might not understand everything but who cares you'll have a good time it's okay um <laughs> and i think here you know what what it boils down to all these political upheavals is this is a family drama all these people are freaking related i mean the percy's are distantly related to the the uh to bolingbroke and prince hal and 
And it's really about, it's about family. And I think when we, when we boil the plays down to that, it becomes just as complicated as any family dynamic (laughs) anywhere, all of its ups and downs and peculiarities. But I really do, I I like that a lot, that there was something about he, he needed, he wasn't ready to risk perhaps his, his power on this, on this gamble. Yeah, Danny. Um, I, I, I had a question about um, his level of like dissociation in a sense. Um, mm. and, and to tell this big story, it's because, um, so I, I know this moment is like a really big moment and I should have a lot of feeling and it's like this, but I'm going to tell this story because really I'm masking like this um, disassociation and um, but uh, it sounds like this story and I have this emotion. So something just, you know, in, in the reads I've had of it um, just feels like that, like false emotion. Um, You know, like he's just putting on not so much a show, like in spite of himself, like maybe he, he's not even aware of it, not fully aware of his feelings. Absolutely. It gives him a way to think about it that makes him feel better about his choices, I would think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. It seems like everybody here is just like, let's cut our losses and move on, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah, for, for how much Hotspur was like talked about and, you know, put on a pedestal in part one, it's interesting to see, yeah. Well, and I actually, I, I still think there's a lot of language in um, Morton's speech that can that continues to put Hotspur on that pedestal. And we'll see more of that later also when Lady Percy comes in mm-hmm. um, and she talks about how loved he was. And so I think it's it's interesting to see the way that Morton describes that scene because I think it really speaks to the love in a way, it speaks to the love that people had for Hotspur and the effect that his death had on everyone. But, but those lines about your Lord, your son had only but the corpse, but shadows in the shows of men to fight. Um, I guess rebe- until rebellion gets connected up with religion, people aren't as inspired to rebel. It is interesting. It's, it's, I mean, I think you sort of, I think Morton makes the point in two different ways, right? I think in, the, in that first speech where you're describing his death, you're talking about the visceral effect that his death and the loss of his leadership had for the rebel mm-hmm. soldiers who what? essentially abandoned their posts when they saw that Hotspur was dead because he was the fire of the rebellion. Yeah. But then it's like, again, it's like we, a commodity, once again, self-interest. Mort is ostensibly a part of the rebellion and he, as he's a follower of Northumberland and he needs to get Northumberland to start gathering his power because he knows that they're about to be attacked, right? So it's like immediately this shift in tactic from like, your son was amazing to, you know what? We've also got a really great, uh, one of the highest members of clergy in the realm who's on our side. And he's gonna speak some sermons and get a lot of people to come on over uh, because now we can purge rebellion when we have someone from the clergy somehow. so it, it does seem to me that, uh, you know, it comes back to this idea of commodity and that actually for Lord Bardolph and Morton and, and Travers and all these people, they really need to sort of get Northumberland back to his powerful position that he held 
within this rebellion and and start doing things to defend himself and all of them otherwise all of them will probably end up dead and with the archbishop you have an army of believers exactly and that's that's very important right um there's the worcester has some really fascinating speeches about how of the offering side um those of us who are in this rebellion we can't you know we can't have dissension amongst the ranks we have to have a really clean uh face and we need to sort of just give give a front of unitedness to the world and of course as we see from the scene with glendower in act three glendower and hotspur the rebellion is not of the same mind they are constantly fighting um right before the battle starts hotspur and douglas are fighting against Whistler and vernon there's there's like a generational gap that is is very much arguing about the proper tactics um for the war so we we've already seen that the rebellion everyone's sort of in it for a slightly different reason and that means that it they can't so much put up a united front as just a a multiple fronts (laughs) um but yeah, quite an quite a an interesting first scene, and what's fascinating to me is uh, quite a few of these characters we're never going to meet again. This was their their little celebrity cameo uh, moment. We're never going to see Morton and Travers again, um, and we're not going to meet the the wily Porter, who's I love at the beginning is essentially like you should do my job and just call for him and he'll appear <laughs> like. Um, I am the porter and I keep the gate, but if you just yell, he'll, he'll come out. Um, <laughs> yeah. So wonderful. Great. Any, any sort of final thoughts on, on this, this first, well, I guess our, our, our first scene of the play. I mean, I just, I just love the, it's really interesting hearing the difference in language between, uh, what, what we would consider the prologue, right? Rumor speech yeah, yeah. into, Morton actually telling the truth of what happened. I think there's a really stark difference between those two speeches that just is really beautiful and Shakespeare's just great. Yay! You know, it's it's a yay, Shakespeare's <laughs> great. Woohoo. Um, you know, it's because there's there's this almost flightiness that I found. Like when I was listening to Danny's beautiful read of it, it was really wonderful. And it's it had this kind of like, I don't know, a wistful flightiness to it that that kind of led us into the not I don't want to say deception but into the um showing us where there was a lack of truth in what was being said and then Mm. there was the heaviness of Morton's speech that you really felt which was like the heaviness Mm. of reality and the heaviness of truth just in terms of like the specific language that was used and that's so that's the the sort of Lobin-esque analysis you just did there yeah 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 yeah. light (laughs) and 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 strong uh imagery that's wonderful exactly thank you yeah well, fantastic. So as always with, with, these, uh, with the Henry IV plays, we have wonderful transitions. Uh, my favorite one in part one is where we go from a rebellion in the throne room to basically a truck stop um, <laughs> with the carrier scene. And here we have, we go from this beautiful Northern castle to probably to London, where Sir John has been given a page by <laughs> Pritzel, who like has to be cast as someone very tiny 
in order for the physical comedy, I think, to play out really well. And he's even called, like in the next couple speeches, Falstaff is going to call him a dwarf uh, quite a few times. Noah, would you would you like to read the 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 servant um, to the to the chief justice here? Sure. Awesome. Okay, great. Uh, thank you so much, Eric, for 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 reading in with the uh, with um, uh, Travers. Um, thank you. <laughs> great. All right. So we're gonna do this first little section, which I call the sow and her litter of one. <laughs> Giant. <laughs> what says the doctor to my water? He said, "Sir, the water itself was a good." healthy water but for the party that owed it he might have more diseases than he knew for men of all sorts take a pride to gird at me the brain of this foolish compounded clay man is not able to invent anything that intends to laughter more than i invent or is invented on me i am not only witty myself but the cause that that wit is in other men. I do here walk before thee like a sow that had overwhelmed all her litter but one. If the prince put thee into my service for any other reason than to set me off, why then, I have no judgment. Thou horse and mandrake, thou artificer to be worn in my cap and to wait at my heels. I was never manned with an agate till now, but I will inset you neither in gold nor silver, but in vile apparel, and send you back again to your master for a jewel. The juvenile, the prince, your master, whose chin is not yet fled, I will sooner have a beard grow in the palm of my hand, and he shall get one off his cheek. And yet, he will not stick to say his face there's a face royal. God may finish it when he will. There's not a hair amiss yet. He may keep it still at a face royal, for a barber shall never earn sixpence out of it. <laughs> and yet, he'll be crowing as if he had ripped man ever since his father was a bachelor. He may keep his own grace, but he's almost out of mine, I can assure him. What said Master Domotin about the satin or my short cloak and my slops? He said, sir, you should procure him better assurance than Bardolph. He would not take his bond and yours. He liked not the security. Let him be damned like the glutton. Pray God his tongue be hotter. Uh, a horse, an akatofu, a rascal, yea, forsooth, knave. Bear a gentleman in hand and then stand upon security. That horse and smoothie pates do now wear nothing but high shoes and bunches of keys at their girdles. And if a man is through with them in honest taking up, then they must stand upon security. I had his leave, they would put rat's bane in my mouth as offered to stop it with security. I looked should have sent me two and twenty yards of satin, as I am a true knight, and he sends me security. Well, 
He may sleep in security, for he has the horn of abundance, and the lightness of his wife shines through it, and yet cannot he see, though he have his own lantern to light him. Where's Bardolph? He's gone to Smithfield to buy your worship a horse. I bought him in Paul's. He'll buy me a horse in Smithfield. And he could give me a wife in the stews. I will man horse and wife. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's, uh, let's pause there. Um, so, Marty, how is this Falstaff different from where we left him in part one? Or, or is what are, what are your observations of him so far? <laughs> Well, he's still at work, work, you know, um, <laughs> he's been assigned work and he's uh, twist, still twisting it to his, to his uh, betterment if he can, but he's still being stymied at uh, either end. You'd think I would have had more uh, payoff for my heroics at Shrewsbury, but instead all I get is like this little imp spy that the <laughs> prince has sent me and I, I still can't get credit and i still can't get you know um any of these things so um i think he's frustrated but still trying to scam things as he as he were and still trying to make a joke where he can um and i suppose he's still worried about his having venereal disease and such you know i, I also think it's, it's just interesting i always think of like um how people, how the audience is watching the play, and how Shakespeare is writing writing the play, and I always think like Falstaff was. Uh, everyone wants to see Falstaff, so here he comes. And, you know, they, <laughs> they a little with you know, other people, but then Falstaff comes in. Um, so it's just like we, you know, you get a lot of Falstaff in these first couple pages. Oh, absolutely! You know, it it reminds me of that that wonderful moment in Shakespeare in Love where they're at the tavern and. Um, and one of the uh, one of the prostitutes says to one of the actors who plays the nurse, "So, what's this new play about?" Then he goes, "Well, there's this nurse," and it's like that's <laughs> like version yeah. of the story. Um, I, quite, I quite like that. As as also, I think with with um, with part one, anytime Falstaff is on stage, we're in prose, right? And and prose just very simply meaning. <laughs> not verse. Um, <laughs> there is not a, a, a rhythm to it. This is not written in iambic pentameter or trochaic tetrameter or any other of the atameters. Um, but here it is, there is a, a, a very strong structure to Shakespeare's verse and, uh, and I'm sorry, to Shakespeare's verse well, and also prose. There's a rhetorical structure to the prose and, um, and Falstaff does this wonderful thing where he will sort of take one word that another character says and then make a meal out of it. Um, and, and here I'm, I'm just looking at security, which he says after the page says security. I think he says, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, you know, like five different times in one speech. He just sort of, it's like he's playing with, with it, like it's a ball and he's playing tennis with it. And there, there are, there's a few characters in Shakespeare that did that. In King John uh, the Bastard, Philip Falconbridge also does that with, with words. Somebody will say a word and then he <laughs> repeating it, turning it inside out like a glove, to quote Festy, um, and, and just doing a lot of, of fun things with it. Um, there's also a couple archaic references, which are always a little bit tricky to get around. Um, 
I always count on uh, Marty to come up with really wonderful ways of letting the audience know what these tricky, complicated words are. So we've got one biblical. A little harder to do on radio. (laughs) (laughs) No props, man. No props. Um, But the Akitafel, I'm so sorry. I actually don't know how to pronounce this. Um, Akitofel is a from the Bible and was an advisor to King David who sided with Absalom in the conspiracy against David. That is the sum of total of what I of what I know. <laughs> um, but was was also realizing as, as we were just working through a part one that actually Falstaff has a remarkably large number of biblical references. Um, he seems particularly obsessed with Lazarus and dives, um, which is something he he brings up multiple times in um, in Henry the Fourth Part One, um, and he's going to make quite a few interesting uh, r- references here. I also love this this bit that he he's not only witty in himself, but he's the cause of wit in other men. I think <laughs> I think no truer statement about Falstaff has been made than, of course, something said by Falstaff about himself. Um, it's really true. People seem to become more witty when they, they walk into the room and he's there. Um, and then our other sweet little character, Liam, tell us about the page. I, for whatever reason, it, it, I just, of course, have Francis just darting around in my mind. Like, yeah. it just, it feels exactly like, like that, very similar to like that. Well, I'm thinking also of courage to the field and just, yeah. the, you know, this little serving boy that just you know he's here he does his squire deeds now uh but but i mean you know it, it, uh <laughs> i mean i don't know it, it also just seems he puts up with with quite a bit i i he just doesn't you know absolutely he, he does, does put up with a lot <laughs> yeah you would have to put up with a lot to be false staff servant i'm sure <laughs> um <laughs> But I, I just had an image of like Falstaff riding him in with a bridle in his mouth. We'll get you your wagon, Marty. <laughs> he can pull you in your wagon. <laughs> um, um, but I, I, I do think there is something surprisingly sassy about him. I don't know why. I think it's just because he's so kind of you gone to Smithfield to buy you a horse. Like there's just something very sort of singular about the way in which he speaks. Um, That's true. And, and I don't know why I just, I have this, this, this image in my head of a kind of like very laconic teenager. Who's like a little bit over everything. Um, and, and I, I don't know why I have that image in my head, but it, it definitely keeps popping into my head. I'm getting minimum um, wage to work for this yeah. terrible guy. But what I do you want to know? Like, I'm over this. Yeah. But of course, the, the prince has, has hired you. Essentially, Hal has hired you, which is also like a very funny, like, do you have meetings with Hal? Like, um, right. how, no how does that relationship work? <laughs> um, Again, I <laughs> yeah. Can I really... I feel like like it was just like how Alfred Francis a job in the tavern just one day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what I think. I mean, does it point to Falstaff's credibility that the only person that rewarded him for his heroics is the one person who knows for a fact that he didn't do any of it? <laughs> and his reward was this 
dweeby kid who annoys false (laughs) (laughs) potentially yes i think i would agree with that statement though i think it is it is hilarious that like I mean, the servant's going to come in and say, oh, yeah, he did. Apparently he did some good service at Shrewsbury, which, like, as the audience knows, he stabbed a dead guy in the thigh. (laughs) That was the good service he did. Um, So it's kind of like, yeah, doubtful here. Doubtful. Uh, But let's get into this this wonderful section, um, which is actually going to go for quite a few pages. Um, Please feel free if there's any uh, questions that come up to just ask them as we go. But I would love to sort of get a run at this this uh chunk with um the page falstaff the lord chief justice and his servant um which is sort of going to go until their exit on on page 16 and um i have entitled this little french scene the disease of not listening so off we go sir here comes the nobleman that committed the prince for striking him about bardolf you wait close i will not see him What's he that goes there? Falstaff, and it please your lordship. He that was in question for the robbery? He, my lord, but he hath since done good service at Shrewsbury, and, as I hear, is now going with some charge to the Lord John of Lancaster. What, to York? Call him back again. Sir John Falstaff! Boy, tell him I am deaf. (laughs) You must speak louder, my master is deaf. I am sure he is to the hearing of anything good. Go pluck him by the elbow. I must speak with him. Sir John! What? A young knave and begging? Is there not wars? Is there not employment? Doth not the king lack subjects? Do not the rebels need soldiers? Though it be a shame to be on any side but one, it is worse shame to beg than to be on the worst side. Were it worse than the name of rebellion can tell you how to make it. You mistake me, sir. Why, sir? Did I say you are an honest man? <laughs> Setting my knighthood and my soldiership aside, I had lied in my throat if I had said so. I pray you, sir, then set your knighthood and your soldiership aside, and give me leave to tell you, you lie in your throat if you say I am any other than an honest man. I give thee leave to tell me so. I lay aside that which grows to me. If thou gettest any leave of me, hang me. If thou takest leave, thou wert better be hanged, you hunt counter hence avant. Sir, my lord would speak with you. Sir John's Falstaff, a word with you. My good lord, I have to see your lordship abroad. I heard say your lordship was sick. I hope your lordship goes abroad by advice. Your lordship, <laughs> though not clean past your youth, have yet some smack of an ague in you, some relish of the saltness of time in you. And I most humbly beseech your lordship to have a reverend care of your health. Sir John, I sent for you before your expedition to Shrewsbury. Oh, and please your lordship, I hear his majesty has returned with some discomfort from Wales. 
I talk not of his majesty. You would not come when I sent for you. Yeah, and I hear moreover, his highness has fallen into this same horse and apoplexy. Well, God mend him, I pray you, let me speak with you. Oh, this apoplexy, as I take it, is a kind of lethargy, and it please your lordship, uh, a kind of sleeping in the blood, uh, horse and tingling. What tell you me of it, be it as it is? It hath its original from much grief, from a study and perturbation of the brain. I have read the cause of his effects in vain. It is a kind of... I think you are fallen into the disease, for you hear not what I say to you. Oh, very well, my lord, very well. Rather than it please you, it is the disease of not listening. The malady of not marking that I am troubled with all. To punish you by the heels would amend the attention of your ears, and I care not if I do become your physician. I am as poor as Job, my lord, but not so patient. Your lords may minister the potion of imprisonment to me in respect of poverty, but how I should be your patient to follow your prescription. The wise may make some dram of a scruple, or indeed, a scruple itself. I sent for you when there were matters against you for your life to come speak with me. As I was then advised by my learned counsel and the laws of this land service, I did not come. Well, the truth is, Sir John, you live in great infamy. He that buckles himself in my belt cannot live in less. Your means are very slender, and your waste is great. Oh, I wish it were otherwise. I would my means were greater, and my waste slender. You have misled the youthful prince. The young prince hath misled me. I am a fellow with the great belly, and he, my dog. Well, I am loath to gall a new healed wound. Your day's service at Shrewsbury hath a little gilded over your night's exploit on Gad's Hill. You may thank the unquiet time for your quiet or posting that action. My lord. But since all is well, keep it so. Wake not a sleeping wolf. To wake a wolf is as bad as smell a fox. What? You are as a candle, the better part burnt out. Uh, a hell candle, my lord, all tallow. If I did say wax, my growth would approve the truth. There is not a white hair in your face, but should have his effect of gravity. Oh, his effect of gravy. 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 <laughs> you follow the young prince up and down like his ill angel. Not so, my lord. His ill angel is light, but I hope he that looks upon me will take me without weighing. And yet, in some respects, I grant I cannot go. I cannot tell. Virtue is of so little regard in his costs among the times that true valor is turned bare herd. 
pregnancy has made a tapster, and he's quick wasted in giving reckonings. All the other gifts are pertinent to a man as the malice of his age shapes them are not worth a gooseberry. You that are old, consider not the capacities of us that are young. You do measure the heat of our livers with the bitterness of your gall. And we that are in the vanguard of our youth, I must confess, are wags too. Do you set down your name in the scroll of youth that are written down old with all the characters of age? Have you not a moist eye, a dry hand, a yellow cheek, a white beard, a decreasing leg, an increasing belly? Is not your voice broken, your wind short, your chin double, your wit single, and every part about you blasted with antiquity? And will you yet call yourself young? Fie, 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 Sir John. My lord. I was born about three o'clock in the afternoon with a white head and something around belly. For my voice, I've lost it with hallooing and singing of anthems. To improve my youth further, I will not. The truth is, I am only old in judgment and understanding. And he that will caper with me for a thousand marks, let him lend me the money and have at him. For the box of the ear that the prince gave you, he gave it like a rude prince, and you took it like a sensible lord. I have checked him for it, and the young lion repents. We're merry, not in ashes and sackcloth, but in a new silk and old sack. Well, God send the prince a better companion. God send the companion a better prince. I cannot rid my hands of him. Well, the king hath severed you. I hear you are going with Lord John of Lancaster against the Archbishop and the Earl of Northumberland. Yeah, I thank your pretty sweet wit for it. But look, you pray, all you that kiss Lady Peace at home, that our armies not join not in a hot day. For by the Lord, I take but two shirts out with me, and I mean not to sweat extraordinarily. <laughs> It'd be a hot day, and I brandish anything but a bottle. I would I might never spit white again. There is not a dangerous action can peep out of his head, but I am thrust upon it. Well, I cannot last ever, but it was always yet the trick of our English nation, if they have a good thing, to make it too common. If ye will... if him. If ye will need say I am an old man, you should give me rest. I would to God my name were not so terrible to the enemy as it is. I were better to be eaten to death with rust than to be scoured to nothing with perpetual motion. Well, be honest, be honest, and God bless your expedition. Will your lordship lend me a thousand pounds to furnish me for? Not a penny, not a penny. You are too impatient to bear crosses. Fare you well. Commend me to my cousin Westmoreland. Okay, let's pause there. Wonderful. Wow. So, (laughs) 
Oh, Falstaff. Um, I did want to mention this this historical fact that actually Prince Hal was banned from the council for punching the Lord Chief Justice at a council meeting. Um, oh. This is actually has some historical fact, uh, although uh, uh, Prince Hal was not, as he is portrayed in, in part one and two, kind of a wastrel. He was actually a manager. He was managing Welsh rebellions and going at the time that he was six, he was 16 during the Battle of Shrewsbury. And he um, he was already kind of a veteran um, and a soldier. And let's not forget that he was actually shot in the face in the Battle of Shrewsbury. An arrow went six inches into his skull. And uh, we have the uh, we have the reports on uh, the from the doctor that treated him. It's actually fascinating about the process with which he had to extract the arrow, and it it it, it lends um, it lends a lot more uh, sort of interest to me to the the scene at the end of Henry V when he's wooing Catherine, and he sort of says, "I know I'm nothing to look at." And I know I might be a little bit rough around the edges when you also think that he has this gashing scar on his face. And that, to me, like makes that scene just infinitely more interesting um, than if it's played by Jude Law. Sorry, Jude Law. Anyway, where, um, where, yeah, was, where did the arrow go into his skull? Like where? I think it like, like went through the cheek. Yeah. yeah. God. I know. Because they, they had to, the scarring was made worse because at the time, the way to heal it so it wouldn't get infected was to layer in like poles <clears> rags. <throat> and so that meant that the scar was, they didn't like sew it shut. They opened it up and then layered in the rags so that it would then not get infected. But that also meant that the scar got wider. Just this massive thing on his face. Yeah. Anywho. Wow. All those wow, fun, fun historical details. Right. I'm gonna be sure to post this little uh, article about about this when we when we when we release this. Um, but I did I did just want to throw out that there is some some historical um, truth to this uh, this sort of combativeness between Prince Hal and the Lord Chief Justice. So um, first of all, Rhoda, what is your what is your impression of the Lord Chief Justice and, 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 and what he does in this scene? Well, it seems like he's just fed up with Falstaff. I mean, <laughs> he knows that Falstaff has this kind of ability to charm the people around him and just kind of fool everyone and I, I think that Lord Chief Justice is like he's full of rectitude and he knows what's going on and yeah. damn it <laughs> he's not <laughs> as attractive as Falstaff is so he's going to just try to undermine him and make a face reality or something I love that I, I mean I, I love the way you read the um, the whole bit about are you seriously calling yourself of youth because it's just such a it is so funny and and Falstaff did that in part one too when they were robbing them he's like what ye men young men must live you know he's like he's got this wonderful thing that like the old are just against us young bloods you know and it's just it's such a funny um such a funny sort of character trope um yeah, and he's always associated so with vanity so powerful oh yeah absolutely um, and, and it's fun because it, sort of structurally, 
this interaction is basically this series of antitheses, right? I mean, you you say something as the Lord Chief Justice, and then Falstaff says something to turn whatever you said on its head and completely, you know, disregard slash contradict what you just said. Um, I love totally the gravy. Reminds me of gravy. Yeah. <laughs> Go I, ahead, I, Marty. I'm really reminded of the um, Abbott and Costello in the like, who's on first? Yeah. It's like, I think <laughs> you get this guy who's a total oh. straight man and yeah. then just cannot get a straight thought across to this yeah. idiot. <laughs> Exactly. At the end, when Falstaff asks him for money, I mean, that's just like, what the hell? <laughs> there is a point in life after which one's self image does not continue to age. Falstaff <laughs> <laughs> has passed that point, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I. Probably true. He's, he's such a. He's, you, I mean, you may not know that yet, but you will. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is such a he's so full of life, Mr. Falstaff here. He just kind of I mean, he's a very big character. But as 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 one of my my mentors said, he's sort of he's as big a character as he is big as a character. Right. I mean, he's just he just fills the page and the stage <laughs> and kind of the audience's imagination. He just sort of demands attention, which is just, it's, it's kind of extraordinary for a character to do that um, in, such a, in such a forceful way. Um, what were your observations, Marty, of this, this little disease of not listening <laughs> section? Well, I mean, like I said, I had that sort of like Abbott and Costello feel to it. Um, and um, we're just trying to, I, I love that he does, like he's, he's both, whenever he meets someone above his station, he always tries to pretend that he's of that state, you know, that, that yeah. we're equals. And yet <laughs> at the same time, he's like goading him with the, um, maybe that's a choice I'm making with the lordship, you know, oh, just because he says it so many times. He's oh, either yeah. it's either being extremely obsequious or it's goading him or both, um, and, um, and just avoiding the you know he's just like a, a master of uh, diversion and um, distraction, yes. um, just sort of uh, wanting to control the um, conversation and. Um, so well, and, and his, uh, his um, delusions about himself and the world around him. Oh my uh, gosh, yes. He also just seems to me to, to have such an ability, no matter what the situation is, and we saw this in, in part one, uh, to just wriggle out of any situation he, he finds himself in where he is sort of caught out for, for being a fraud or for being a thief and sort of goes, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, and comes up with this amazing distraction and totally different way of, of seeing it. You know, I knew you the whole time. Um, yeah. You know, and, and this seems to me to be a reminder of how good he is about getting out of situations. The next time we see him, he's going to get out of being arrested <laughs> very, very deftly. Um, and I, 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 I just quite love that about, about, about him. Um, and oh lord this is a long section the um 
<laughs> the oh, what I was going to say is the contrast of how he speaks to the servant versus how he speaks to the Lord Chief Justice is yeah. kind of extraordinary. You know, like I need a horse and <gasps> my lord. You know, it's just like yeah. it kind of reminds and for the me, audience. Oh yeah, completely, completely. It it reminds me of in in part one where he sees Hal while they're on their way to Shrewsbury and he's he calls him Mad Wag and then and then he sees Westmoreland and it's oh my good lord Westmoreland yeah, yeah. you know it's like it's he just like throws Hal out of the way as 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 you did um, it's it's there's something um, he wants to grow great as he says at the end he wants to he wants to have a higher station and. And, and not have to worry about security for a new new pair of clothes. There's there's an interesting kind of jolly ambition about it. I don't know if you know the the keeping up appearances. Oh yeah. yes, of course. Yeah, there's there's something of hyacinth bouquet about him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the good old buckets. Um, yeah. Bouquet. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, and then, so then the, the justice leaves and then, and says, oh, please, you know, send my greetings to my cousin Westmoreland. And it's like the mask comes off and we see an entirely different uh, false staff. So let's take the, the last two sections here, the consumption of the purse and gouts and poxes. If I do, fillip me with a three-man beetle. A man can no more separate age and covetousness. And can apart young limbs and lechery. But the gout galls the one, and the pox pinches the other. And so both the degrees prevent my curses. Boy! Sir? What money is in my purse? Seven groats and two pence. I can get no remedy against this consumption of the purse. Borrowing only lingers and lingers it out. But the disease is incurable. Go, bear this letter to my Lord of Lancaster. This to the Prince. This to the Earl of Westmoreland. And this to old Mistress Ursula, whom I have really sworn to marry since I perceived the first white hair of my chin. About it, you know where to find me. Oh, pox of this gout! Her gout with this pox. For the one or the other plagues the rogue of my great toe. <laughs> Tis no matter if I do horses. I have the walls for my color, and my pension shall seem the more reasonable. A good wit will make use of anything. I will turn diseases to commodity. <laughs> I love this. He's like resolved that he's going to take his STD and pretend that he got it in the wars. Right? <laughs> like, it's like, amazing. amazing. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? That last little little section there, um, uh, Liam and Marty. <laughs> I, I just I, I find him for, uh, it makes me it reminds me of that scene in Henry where I, I think it's it's where like Hal's just sending out a bunch of letters, but then yeah. there's just the Ursula thing at the end, and I don't know. Absolutely, <laughs> you gotta deliver a lot of letters. There's a lot of letters are everything in these plays. They're the only source of news. It's kind of extraordinary how important they are. <laughs> it is. I don't know how I'm gonna get around without him there. So anyway, <laughs> I have to walk. 
yeah. So, <laughs> on my big toe. On your big toe. <laughs> wonderful. Um, so we had our, our wonderful little uh, scene in, in, in prose, and now we move to our final scene in Act 1, where this is all kind of one section. There are no entrances and exits, and this is with the Archbishop that we've heard so much about so far, um, Thomas Mowbray, who is also known as Earl Marshall, the Earl of Marshall, um, the Lord Hastings, and Lord Bardolph. <laughs> um, so this whole, I, I just entitled the scene, The Rebels Rally and Plan. So let's just have a, a nice read through the scene, and we'll, then we'll discuss it. Have fun. Thus have you heard our cause and known our means. And my most noble friends, I pray you all speak plainly, Europeans, of our hopes. And first, Lord Marshal, what say you to it? I will allow the occasion of our arms, but gladly would be better satisfied how in our means we should advance ourselves to look with forehead bold and big enough upon the power and puissance of the king. Our present musters grow upon the file to five and 20,000 men of choice, and our supplies live largely in the hope of great Northumberland, whose bosom burns with an incessant fire, whose bosom burns with an, an incessant fire of injuries. The question then, Lord Hastings, standeth thus, whether our present five and 20,000 may hold up ahead without Northumberland. With him we may. Yea, Mary, there's the point. But if without them, but if without him we be thought too feeble, my judgment is we should step too, we should not step too far till we had his assistance by the hand. For in a theme so bloody faced as this, conjecture, expectation, and surmise of aids in certain should not be admitted. Is very true, Lord Bardolph, for indeed it was young Hotspur's case at Shrewsbury. It was my lord who lined himself with hope, eating the air and promise of supply, flattering himself in a project of a power much smaller than the largest of his thoughts. And so with great imagination, proper to madmen, led his powers to death and winking leapt into destruction. But by your leave, it never yet did hurt to lay down likelihoods and forms of hope. Yes, if this present quality of war, indeed the instant action, a cause on foot, lives so in hope. As in an early spring, we see the appearing buds, which to prove fruit, hope gives not so much warrant as despair that frosts will bite them. When we mean to build, we first survey the plot, then draw the model, and when we see the figure of the house, then, we mu then must we rate the cost of the erection which if we find outweighs ability, what do we then but draw anew the model in fewer offices, or at least desist to build it all? Much more, in this great work, which is almost to pluck a kingdom down and set another up, should we survey the plot of situation and the model, consent upon a sure foundation, question surveyors, know our own estate, how able, able such a work to undergo to weigh against his opposite or else we fortify in paper and in figures using the names of men instead of men like one that draws the model of a house beyond his power to build it who half through gives or and leaves his part created cost a naked subject to the weeping clouds and waste for churlish winter's tyranny 
Grant that our hopes, yet likely of fair birth, should be stillborn, and that we now possess the utmost man of expectation. I think we are a body strong enough, even as we are, to equal with the king. What is the king but five and twenty thousand? To us no more, nay, not so much, Lord Bardolph, for his divisions, as the times do brawl, are in three heads one power against the French, and one against Glendower. Perforce a third must take up us. So is the unfirm king in three divided, and his coffers sound with holy poverty and emptiness. That he should draw his several strengths together and come against us in full puissance need not be dreaded. If he should do so, he leaves, us back un- he leaves his back unarmed, the French and Welsh baying him at the heels. Never fear that. Who is it like should lead his forces hither? The Duke of Lancaster and Westmoreland against the Welsh, him, himself, and Harry Monmouth. But who is substituted against the French, I have no certain notice. Let us on and publish the occasion of our arms. The Commonwealth is sick of their own choice. Their over-greedy love hath surfeited. A habitation giddy and unsure hath he that buildeth on the vulgar heart. Oh, thou fond many, and with what loud applause didst thou beat heaven with blessing Baldingbrook, before he was what thou wouldst have him be? And being now trimmed in thine own desires, thou beastly feeder, art so full of him that thou provokest thyself to cast him up. So, so, thou common dog, didst thou disgorge thy glutton bosom of the royal Richard, and now thou wouldst eat thy dead vomit up and howls to find it. What trust is in these times? They that when Richard lived would have him die and now have become enamored on his grave. Thou that threwst dust upon his goodly head when thou proud London he came sign on after the admired heels of Bolingbroke. Christ now, O earth, yield us that king again and take thou this, O thoughts of men accursed. Past and to come seems best, things present worst. Shall we go draw our numbers and set on? We are time subjects, and time bids be gone. Lovely. Wow, what a tongue twister of a speech there you got, Mike, at the end. <gasps> Fuck, right. <laughs> it's like, like all of these, like... Thou Royal Richard, dust. Wast, wast, wouldst, what's thou that thrust? I'm also really enjoying. So, uh, for everyone, Mike read Bolingbroke in Richard II for us. So I'm I'm really enjoying him uh, talking about himself in this in this in this speech. Um, wonderful. So uh, let us let's actually let's go from the beginning here. So Mike, tell us about the Archbishop. What are your what are your sort of impressions of him so far and 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 what happens in this scene it's very interesting because he, the, the very beginning it's like well here's the scenario what what do you guys think we should do yeah and um it's funny because it's it's clear that he's kind of on the side of the rebels here right so but at the same time he's like these fucking people just <laughs> like you know they they wanted to get rid of richard and they got rid of richard and then they loved bowling right now they want to get rid of bowling it's like do they not care about what's going on now it's just always in the i love that line at the very end 
Mm. Past and to come seems best, things present worst. People always look back to the past and look forward to the future and that they don't really care for what's going on currently, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're going to have an amazing line, I believe it's in Act 4, where you say, we're all diseased, which is just like one of my favorite lines in the whole play. And I feel like there's there's this like imagery of of the archbishop that like everyone is disgusting. (laughs) Like thy dead vomit up, like eat thy dead. Like what is that even is that image? Uh, It's so repulsive. (laughs) Vomit it up and then eat it right back up again. It's like, oh, wow. I love it. But yeah, there's there's something um he does seem like this kind of like okay, so to sum up kind of guy, and then he gets that speech at the end, which is like Ugh. it's just kind of like dark and black bile and kind of I don't know, there's something really visceral about that final speech for me. And it's just so hard to say because you've got all of these repeated consonant um uh Oh yeah sort of little families all over the sh- all over the shop with 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 that then we we have our 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 thomas mowbray earl marshall um who who doesn't speak that much in this scene um but but do 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 you have an impression of of him that much you don't get a lot to go on <laughs> yeah he just seems agreeable and yeah. ready to you know yeah Absolutely. And I do believe just for the continuity of all of the histories we've worked through that I believe that this is Thomas Mowbray from the beginning of Richard II. I believe this is his son. So this is, again, continuing, Uh. continuing this 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 family uh, dynamic and this this Mowbray who sided with King Richard, um, who was very much Bolingbroke's enemy. It makes perfect sense to me that his uh, offspring would join a rebellion against Bolingbroke. Um, uh, and then we have Lord Hastings. Tell us about Lord Hastings, Sam. I know Hastings is an interesting character, especially when you're looking at uh, the other dudes in the scene, because he <laughs> he just kind of, the impression that I get at least, is that he just kind of wants to dive back into it. You know, he's mm-hmm. like, no, we, we have enough people. We, we just need to, go like let's not worry about this too much and just get in there and f some stuff up that's at least like my my impression where we're um like bardoff talks more about like or they all seem to talk more about like building up forces and all that and hastings is like no 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 we're good like the king's the king's all distracted and stuff so we're just gonna go and let's go right now yeah he yeah. seems um to because you've inspired me sam with your earlier lobin language he seems oh. very time stressed yeah he's right? very time stressed <laughs> um to do some lobin psychology there um <laughs> yeah su- super time stressed no that's a great way of putting it <laughs> um but brings up a really a really good point that it's common knowledge that the king and and we saw the king do this, although we didn't we didn't hear about him dividing up part of his power to go against the French, mm-hmm. but we did find out at the end of Henry the Fourth Part One that he's dividing his power to go after the remaining rebellion, and that's sort of common knowledge. It makes the most strategic sense, so the rebels would know that. So he seems to be saying, "Let's get the best." You know, it's maybe it isn't possible that we win on all of these fronts, but maybe on our front, if we really get organized, we mm-hmm. could we could at least defeat him. And, and and if we de- we get 
one battle ahead, you know, that will help us. It'll, it'll help our cause. It is interesting to me, Liam, I want to bring you into this conversation. Um, the difference between Lord Bardolph here and, the, and Lord Bardolph in front of Northumberland and the way that he talks about Hotspur. Um, did you, did you notice a, a, a difference? Um, no, all? yeah. I, I mean, it seems like, you know, like he, he wanted to, you know, like talk very highly, of course, like, like the face comes off, you know, it's like, mm. I, yeah, he wasn't high on Hotspur like a lot of people, it seems like. Well, and he's he's so much more sort of practical about about it. He's you know he's yeah. he's sort of saying, yeah, I mean, Hosper was a great warrior, but he really didn't do very well strategically. I mean, deciding to go ahead without over half of the mm -hmm. army um, was probably was what yeah. what killed him. And like, let's not be. I love this bizarre speech you have about building a house um it's like i mean i just get the sense that he's like full of himself and so he's gonna go off and talk about like i, yeah. <laughs> I remember when i built my house i remember when i built my house there is something but, but about I mean, like if he was here. in a different era he would be an architect you know there's something he, he <laughs> finds great joy in this in 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 pulling out this metaphor of designing your dream house and then realizing oh shit i can only afford for half of it okay maybe <laughs> let's start over we'll get rid of the 500 square foot kitchen and we'll make it a 100 square foot kitchen <laughs> then we'll be really happy <clears throat> um but yeah it's it's a it's a funny speech to to, to happen right in the right in the middle of this of the scene <laughs> Like it's almost kind of funny, right? Because he, he like at the very beginning he's like so sure of himself, yeah. And uh, like you know, did all this great these great things have happened, and then all all of a sudden he's like, well, we got to make sure that everything's like right before we go forward. We yeah, well, I think he's probably conclusions. he's yeah. probably backpedaling pedaling a little bit because he's like, oh god, I was so wrong last time. I was really <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, and I think there there is something kind of funny that like one of the first things he said is to Northumberland is like if Hotspur doesn't have the day I'll give up my title and now he's like let's be really careful about what we promise <laughs> let's be careful <laughs> about what we do here uh, <laughs> I hope no one heard me say I give up my title yeah. I, I was joking I was joking let's just let's breeze past that we're right. gonna breeze past that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so we have this this scene and they seem to by the end at least they may have some some disagreements about um the exact best way to proceed, but they do seem to decide okay, we're going to go ahead. Mm -hmm. And this is what is going to carry us into really we don't we don't see a lot of the rebellion again until act 4, but uh we'll see a, a very different kind of kind of battle. Um, that is very much about words and not about the Scotsmen getting a whole bunch of sword fights um, and really about the sort of Machiavellian political maneuverings of a young uh, John of Lancaster. And as, as I know, uh, Sam Gilroy, who is our Prince Hal in uh, Henry IV Part One in our reading would very much want me to say because Machiavelli is so misunderstood <laughs> that his his most misquoted line is you know it, it's it's better to be feared than loved but the most important part of that sentence it's never good to be hated right yeah and that's a very very important distinction in his philosophy and it's best to be both feared and loved
So I, just to give Machiavelli his, his due here at the end of this discussion. Um, so that is Act 1 of King Henry IV, Part 2. Yeah, Noah! <laughs> I just, I want to add to that thought about Machiavelli because I had a oh, very yeah. impassioned instructor, uh, English and historian instructor in high school who who part of their thesis was that the prince, which that quote comes from, was a parody of other governmental instructions of the time mm. and how a lot of characters who are derived from the Machiavellian line of thought are also parodies of that kind of using cunning to be more sinister but it's wow. kind of a send-up of of rulers who think they're above their people and it ultimately causes the destruction of the ruler and it's more complicated than i can remember right now but just to add to that thought that um the machiavellian nature of prince hal is kind of derived from a parody that's wonderful. Cool. And, and, and as uh, we discovered with King John, sometimes parodies of the things that they are become prime examples of the thing that they're parodying. As uh, we sort of concluded that King John is almost a parody of a history play and a parody of diplomacy, as well as being one of the most prime examples of how much the nobility and the kings would backstab each other <laughs> during these time periods. Um, that is wonderful, though. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, did anyone have any sort of final thoughts about Act 1 as we've, we've just sort of um, dove in to, to this can, first act? Can I just say that from my Morton's point of view, the, uh, the Archbishop is disappointing to me. Oh. <laughs> because I, I hold him in pretty high regard that oh, he's going to be the the great leader that's going to pick up Hotspur's cold spur and make it hot again and lead forth. And here he is talking about all this sad stuff, you know. <laughs> and God, you going, clarified because I, I thought you were, you, you were commenting on my performance. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. no. No, no. I'm glad Morton didn't hear you talk about throwing it up and eating it back. Yeah. I think. And these guys are such bureaucrats. Yeah. That's to me the, you know, I just see Mitch McConnell and his gang. Yeah. You know, doing their stuff. Oh my God, Bardoff is so Mitch McConnell. Yeah, no, totally. It's like. <laughs> Uh, I will uh, accept the election results now. We're 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 okay. We're okay. <laughs> Accurate, but you know there there might be something. Perhaps there might be something even more cynical, Amber, in your line back in Act uh, in the in the first scene of supposed sincere and holy in his thoughts. Okay. Talking about the Archbishop. I mean, there's okay. something supposed yeah. could be both seeming, but also considered or regarded so there there's an interesting double meaning in that okay. verb that you could put that you could good. have fun with <laughs> very good i've heard about you archbishop <laughs> supposedly <heard> holy <laughs> oh um, yes thank you thank you very good <laughs> very well good. wonderful thank you all so much